Well, welcome everyone to uh, another very exciting edition of the Magic Sandwicher. And what a two weeks it's been since we were last with you. We've had the death of Margaret Thatcher, death and burial, gone for good now. Um, we've had some uh, rather shocking uh, scenes taking place in Boston. Uh, and of course, a huge explosion in Texas. So those are issues that we are going to be discussing later on in the show. Well, not without Margaret Thatcher, but uh, Boston and Texas. We're also going to be talking about ERVs and Jason Burns. And we're going to kick off, though, with uh, DMCAs. We do concordance. is going to start us off with that. Uh, just to remind people, if you want to talk about any of those issues or any other issues, simply send a, send a Skype contact request to Magic Sandwich Show, including in that, please, the gist of the topic or conversation that you would like to have. Otherwise, your request will be ignored. Let's get straight on with it, then. Concordance, you have, uh, I think, maybe for the first time, been on the receiving end of a DMCA notice. Tell us all about it. Uh, so, <laughs> I made a video a few weeks back, maybe a few months back, uh, on Stanislaw Brzezinski's cancer clinic in Houston. Dr. Brzezinski is, uh, I think we would call him an alternative medicine proponent uh, and MD, at least questionably an MD, who offers anti-neoplastons, uh, alternative therapy, but it is basically a chemotherapy. Uh, it's a chemical that he derived from human urine. Uh, it's not I made mean, synthetically, but it was originally obtained from urine. Uh, there are two primary compounds, two compounds that are, are the primary source of everything. Uh, and one of them is basically sodium phenylbutyrate, which is already patented. He's filed a cross-patent for this sort of pro-drug form of this. Anyway, he is not a charitable person. He operates his clinic at a very um, profitable venture for him. He has a lovely $12 million home uh, in Houston. And we did a video just basically talking about the red flags about the clinic that I, as a cancer researcher, would probably tell to someone who asked me, who, who wanted to talk about whether or not this was legitimate science. And it's not that he's not using crystals. He's not calling down the power of the ancients. He's using a chemotherapy. It's just one that has not been well supported. Uh, one of the biggest red flags, and it's the first one in the video, is that in 30 years of operation, he has opened 61 clinical trials, but only closed, finished one, which means basically his business model is continuously operate clinical trials without any conclusions coming from them. And that allows him to use experimental medications, medications which have not met the burden of proof, uh, on patients who are charged for those medications uh, without having to go through any of the drug approval process. Right? That's his business model. That's how he operates his business. Uh, he came into the forefront or the, the limelight for a bit when a filmmaker by the name of Eric Marola uh, Eric is a commercial art director. You may have seen his work on TV. Uh, he's made many of the commercials for um, Old Navy uh, and a couple of other uh, big names like that. So he makes commercials. He decided to go out on his own. And I should mention he is uh, the brother of the filmmaker who made the Zeitgeist movies as well. Uh, he went out on his own and made an independent film on Brzezinski's battles against regulatory uh, restrictions by the FDA. The FDA 
uh, are trying to get him basically for abusing the clinical trial system, for using unproven medications, and for violations of ethics with regards to how he's treating his patients, so human ethical violations. Uh, Eric saw my video, and in a, what he says was a, a screening of lots of videos where they had replicated his work on YouTube, uh, flagged my down for a DMCA or copyright claim. Uh, <laughs> I Just said out a, of a nice... Sure. I, I have a very quick question, not to divert you too much. I'm just going to check this. Um, what's the name, just so I can check how many videos actually there are on YouTube that do share his work? Because I would have thought that it would have been absolutely bugger all. What was the guy's name again? It's called Brzezinski. That's got a Y in the middle, B-U-R-Z-Y-N-S-K-I. Uh, Brzezinski, Cancer is Serious Business. Yep. And the accusation is that, uh, you know, the big pharma, of course, bugaboo of big pharma, have been suppressing his brilliant therapy and how it's a magical cure for cancer. Uh, But apparently they have mind control over Brzezinski because he has no interest, apparently, in publishing his research or even closing a trial. Now, he doesn't have to go to the FDA to close a trial. He just has to submit a report. So he pre-registers the trial. He conducts the research, and at the end, he gathers the results, and he submits them as a closed trial. What he hasn't done, he keeps opening them and then letting them basically die uh, two years without any updates, and the clinical trials people put it down as unknown. Uh, So he starts the trial, but he never closes the trial because that would mean reporting on the results back to the, the registration, back to the registers. Um, and so he can continue to operate like this indefinitely. Now, you know, some, some people have called him on it, and that's resulted in a couple of court cases, both within Texas and at the federal level. But uh, really, that's a side issue. That people know what the big red flags were. Marola is objecting, I think, to his mention in that video, where I mentioned that he is a commercial art director, that the movie that he made is very one-sided, and it's largely a commercial for the Brzezinski Clinic. Uh, and perhaps that's an influence of what his background is. He objected to that, and that's really why he submitted the DMCA. Uh, now, ostensibly, there is a picture of the movie poster, uh, and it's, a, it's, it's occupying less than one-tenth of the screen. And there's a slightly larger image of him standing in front of an audience at a, a public venue. Uh, just to identify who the heck Eric Marola is, it's in a slide uh, at two locations. So that was the extent of the material. I borrowed very little from it. Should have no clinical impact. And it was not actually his unique work or copyrighted work which was being duplicated. So, of course, we would, have to, we would have to suss all this out in court in order to verify that what I've done is fair use under the um, what 512F of the DMCA. Uh, I mean, and this, I can certainly... this one's a no-brainer. I mean, this one is so clear-cut fair use that it's a farce. He's not making the claim in good faith. It's obviously an attempt to suppress a critic who he just doesn't like. And the email chain between us has been progressively elaborating on that. Um, And I won't go into any further detail because it may indeed end up in court, except to say that I I don't believe he had a good faith intent 
to preserve his copyright. I think his his intentions were otherwise oh, very clear. I mean, there, there is just no way that you could even... You see, to file a, a DMCA, you have to have a good faith um, uh, belief that what um, actually happened was an infringement of copyright. And right. in that good faith, you have to take into account uh, fair use. Um, there is just no way that he could possibly argue that he did that in good faith. Just to, um, So I, I looked up a Brzezinski movie, and indeed it is online. It's got 100,000 views on it, and it's got a very high rating, um, a depressingly high rating, uh, about... Right. 97% or something. Um, it, and there's a load of other stuff on there. So, I mean, the idea that he was try, trying to get his stuff off of YouTube is just obviously bollocks. I mean, the whole movie is up there. I think perhaps um, yeah. looking at the comments in the video is perhaps important to distinguish between the doctor and the filmmaker. It's not the doctor that served the notice, it's the filmmaker. Yeah, That's correct. That's right. That's right. I, I do want to make sure that distinction is made. Um, Brzezinski's clinic has a PR director. Uh, and if you haven't read the story of Rice Morgan, right, I believe it's called Rice. Uh, Rice Morgan is uh, 17 at the time. He's 18 now. A uh, blogger who wrote something very similar, critical of the Brzezinski clinic. And a PR flack at the Brzezinski clinic went after him. Uh, served him with, uh, you know, all these sort of paralegal, not paralegal, semi-quasi-legal type jargon about we're going to sue you and we're going to take your house and, uh, you know, just obvious attempts to legally intimidate, uh, intimidate with legal threats. Um, this young blogger, the 17-year-old, uh, and he blew the lid off the thing. And, and that really was maybe the first time that the skeptic community recognized the kind of tactics that were being used by this Brzezinski guy. Otherwise, he's a uh, well, virtually unremarkable clinic, you know, selling dreams to, to cancer patients, selling false hope, uh, and living yeah, he's, quite he's, comfortably he's, off of that. And it's verbatim the techniques of Scientology. You know, as L. Ron Hubbard right. himself said, attack, attack, attack. Um, yeah, which is... Yeah, maintain the initiative, um, which might be a but good strategy, but it's it's damn cheap. I'm sure, concordance, you would like to thank all of those. I'm sure you'd like to thank all of those, like myself, who mirrored your video. And somebody in the chat said it was the most mirrored thing he'd ever seen on YouTube. So thank you to everyone that did that. Um, well, yeah, that's I, something. I, I do want. I mean, I want to thank everybody that helped me out with this. I've also gotten a lot of contact from. Uh, you know, a community of skeptics who do this kind of thing, you know, in their free time and go around supporting people who are being attacked, who who defend others from these kinds of legal thuggery. And it's amazing. There's an intersection of First Amendment free speech and skepticism uh, that is heavily populated. People like the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, chilling effects. Uh, one man that's been very helpful already, um, Bob, and I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name, 
Blasovix. I'm just, just guessing. Uh, and then there's a, a site called Popat that apparently has done a lot of work on this. And I'm going to try to contact them. I'm not giving up the fight. I don't want to have to take this to court. I don't want this to become a legal confrontation. I don't want this to happen to someone else, though. So I want to make sure that I've covered two bases. One, that I don't I take the high road on this, and I take the, the noble side so that we don't look like the same types of thugs that these alt-med um, you know, intimidators and, and bullies. I want to make sure that we are clearly differentiated from them in our tactics, and that is we, we take the high road, do the right thing that's available. At the same time, if this becomes a pattern... I don't want it to slide past me. I don't want it to start with me. Um, so I, I'm, I mean, I'm weighing those two things against each other. I've um, usually had the sentiment on these things that uh, if you do let these things slide, they will come back to haunt you. Um, that if it does become sort of public knowledge that you can just use the DMCA to harass people, um, then that's essentially what will happen. And so it's not quite a zero-tolerance policy, but you have to basically uh, rip them off a strip. Um, you, just so the next person who comes along, um, you know, I mean, ironically, looking back to the Venom Fang X thing, um, you know, I, I think that did a lot. You know, it wasn't just the fact that he was an annoying kid who... Uh, annoyingly incredibly arrogant kid who um, had to make this humiliating apology. It was also that um, whenever anyone started messing around with the DMCA, you could just send them that video. And, you know, basically this is going to be you in 30 days' time or whatever, two months. Yes, and it was an incredibly well-written uh, piece that he had to read out, wasn't it? I did enjoy trying. Uh, yeah, 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 I, I can't, can't imagine where you're going with that, DJ. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, um, let's, let's uh, come back to that topic on future shows when you can give us... Actually, uh, hang on, there, there's, um, I didn't get to the... Oh, I'm sorry, do carry on. The, 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 down, the downside, of course, is... That it is a terribly time-consuming business, and it is a terribly thankless task. Um, you know, uh, in a month's time, uh, people will just be, uh, you know, the fact that you fought these battles uh, will mean almost nothing to people. Um, it, it's really quite a thankless, you know, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and you don't really... Um, get a lot out of it other than sort of knowing that uh, um, you, you sort of reverse the chilling effects. Yeah, I do have one last thing I want to say, um, and that is, and this is a public appeal. I know this video will go up on YouTube. If anyone out there is uh, someone who would be interested in taking my case, I'd like to have that as a backup plan. Uh, I, I've talked with at least one representative who'd be willing to work with me but i'd like to have options well, uh and i'd like to have some backup if necessary so if anyone wants to make the offer if they have standing in the u.s or uh have a legal background i'd, I'd be interested in talking to you well you can take my assistance for granted but as you rightly i point out i'm 
not in the, really in the right country um, to be of much practical help. But there we are. Um, and let, let me let me step up and offer a somewhat different um, uh, potential aid, and that's that it looks like um, after the first round of the video contest, because the response um, was not really what uh, I was hoping for. Or um, I, I, yeah, a lot of people did a lot of work on it, but um, I, I'm going to be pulling the plug on the video contest after the first round. Um, but that does mean that there's um, eight thousand dollars, which I've now um, free to do something with, and I'm more than happy to put that on the table as collateral, um, just so yeah, if it. When you do go to places like the Electronic Freedoms Foundation, the mere fact that you can partially subsidize this um, it may be um, whatever a deal maker. That's appreciated. It's a shame that, that that contest didn't get better participation. I thought it was a brilliant idea. You've got you know the opportunity to launch a new channel. You've got a nice cash reward. You've got... Jeannie Scott's attention. I mean, I, I was all gung-ho to, to put out my own content for it, and it just work caught me flat-footed. We had um, – and let me apologize to everybody. <laughs> I started my gun, my gun control series, and it just died on the vine because – I mean, I'm going back to it. Don't get me wrong. AACR came. American Association for Cancer Research meeting uh, was just week before last and we had a project dumped on us uh, that had to be out by then in order to launch and, and be presented. Uh, and so I was working 12-hour days. I just I did not have the time. I had some travel outside of the country that ate huge amounts of my time up, planning, decompiling, compiling, you know, putting everything together. And, and anyway, I, I'm back on now. Everything's settled down a little bit. And I will uh, get back to it. But I just uh, I hate that thunder. I thought it was a great idea and a great way to spark some innovation uh, within our community, within YouTube, to, to get some new good science content out. I mean, there were some you know really nice entries. It's just um, I, I'm not so sure this is the most effective way to spend the money. Um, but I, th I think a lot of it is also that, if you like, the first generation of YouTubers came through. When we started in this, it was a very low competition environment. And almost anyone who could sort of put together you know, a few things in an editor, they were sort of quasi-competitive. Now the bar is much higher. And so, you know, what you were saying, I mean, making these videos takes a lot of time. And not only that, it takes a lot of investment just to get the sort of basic skills to be able to put these things together. Um, and that's, uh, you know, it's very difficult to see how we're going to get organic growth in this community in the future, which will basically mean that we're at the mercies of you know, commercial ventures. And I'm, uh, that, yeah, that, that's a shame because one of the nice things about YouTube is. Yeah, there was there was a lot of organic stuff out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyone could could pop out with something they felt very passionate about and have a voice. That's what I like about YouTube is 
is the plurality of it. it that you know, it's not like a blog. A blog requires so much work to bring the audience there. YouTube is a pre-made audience. It's just a matter of you coming out with the content uh, in order to get some views, to, to get your voice out there. Whereas with a blog, you have to find someone to link to it. You have to join this whole group and promote it somehow. Uh, it's just so much easier on YouTube. Yeah. Um, let's see if we can move on. I know that um, I mentioned a couple of issues which we're, we're going to come to, which are uh, Boston um, and Texas, and particularly what's been happening there in the last week or so. Um, but there's one I'm, I forgot to mention. Um, Tony, who is working away uh, wonderfully behind the scenes to bring you this in all its glory, should be able to put up an image uh, for us. Um, and I don't know whether anyone's familiar with the story. Uh, Tony, are you able to put that up? I know there's a bit of a delay, so it'll be a while before I can probably see it. But um, this is, I thought, was a very interesting story. Um, also, hopefully, towards the end, we may, uh, time permitting, come on to the issue of what science cannot answer. But there you are. Um, have, has anyone seen this picture before? <laughs> it's a man in a very large plastic bag sitting on an aeroplane. Um, we'll leave, if, if you're not familiar with that story, we'll leave that one for a little bit later on in the show. But what I do want to move on next to, if I can, please, gentlemen, is the issue of indigenous... <coughs> excuse me. Indigenous... Is that how you pronounce it? Indigenous retroviruses. <coughs> Excuse me. Endogenous. Thank you. I knew that was. I was getting it yeah. wrong. Endogenous. And the reason I want to bring this up is um, because our old friend uh, Jason Burns, who, if you're not familiar with, is a um, vocal theist uh, Christian who has a remarkable output on YouTube, posting anything up to 144 videos a day. Um, I think that was his highest ever but quite regularly we'll put out 40 or more. And in the last week it appears that, and I'm just going to refer to them as ERVs now because I can't pronounce it, he's been referring to ERVs uh, as not being supportive um, of the theory of uh, evolution. And Oh boy, this is going to be fun, amateur virology. Yeah, and he spent, this is what I thought now, was Now, th this wasn't just amateur virology. I'm not even so sure he knows what viruses are. No, I'm pretty certain he doesn't. Uh, he's talking from a complete position of ignorance. And I, I sent him a private message because I didn't want to give him publicity. But, hey, I'm sorry, Jason, you've asked for it. You're getting it. This is all for you. I sent him a message asking him various questions about this 25-minute video, the details of which I'll come to in a second. Uh, he refused to answer. Um, I mean, he, he sp spelled this out in a message he, he sent back to me. He refused to answer. He didn't trust me. And the only way that I could gain his trust is if we changed our ways on the Magic Sandwich Show, uh, if we became friends, and if I ensured that uh, he would ha be able to have his academic debate with Aron Ra. Um, so, sorry, Jason, <laughs> ain't going to happen, is it? But in his 25-minute video, and I don't know much, a great deal about them, and this is what we're going to discuss. Hopefully you'll give him a, a primer. In fact, if you can dumb it down a little bit more than primer for him. 25-minute video in, involving, amongst other things, a chessboard and some sort of like uh, reference to mathematics. He basically said that the idea that you could find ERVs in the same places in the chimp sequence, uh, DNA sequence, and the human sequence, was mathematically impossible. 
and therefore it basically showed that creation was right and evolution was wrong. But in, in short, he spent 25 minutes putting forward the most positive and powerful argument for evolution that a creationist ever has. But we're going to take this in steps for you, Jason. Um, thunder or concordance, which one would like to go first in doing, as I say, a primer lesson for, amongst other people, Jason, on what ERVs are and how they support the theory of evolution. Concordance, so I know you've talked a lot. Do you, do you want Thunder to go on this or do you want to take it? Thunder, do you want to go? I mean, this is my baby. Um, oh, well, let's stick with yeah, I, I, was, I was about to say, yeah. yeah concordance. Now, remember, your audience is Jason Burns, so keep right, it simple. Right. All right. So, viruses. Viruses are made up of parts genomically, right? They have uh, little sticky bits at either end on their DNA, little uh, sequences, which some of their enzymes recognize. Their life cycle involves being inserted into the the genome of their host. So here you've got your human, and they get a retrovirus. And that re retrovirus copies itself into the patient or the person's genome. And then it lays dormant. And if enough damage occurs to the parts, the ends particularly, of that virus, then it no, no longer has the ability to escape. All right? So those things accumulate over time. Now, because they're inert, they aren't genes, they're not subject to any kind of purifying selection. It's not like, you know, one mutation is unfavored so that that organism is less likely to pass on its genes. So the, the, the babies of the original infection uh, also have that infection. It's passed on from mother to son, you know, mother to child, uh, and so on and so forth. I think we all get that idea. Okay. If they're damaged badly before you, enough, before you go they on, though, uh, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, Concordance. Can I just clarify one thing? Is there a difference between a sure. retrovirus and a virus? And what's the, um, I'm going to pronounce it incorrectly again, what's the E, the endogenous? What does that mean? We can break it down. Endo means aside, and, and the genus sort of refers to the fact that it's within our genome. So it's it's a virus found within your genome. Exogenous would mean it, it arrives from outside of your genome, or you know it has an, a separate origin, right? So exogenous and endogenous. On the retro. So if I say you know the virus was added exogenously, that means it was added in. Right. And the right? retro. So means... these endogenous viruses are they they are derived from within our genome. Okay. So they're these inert pieces of junk. Uh, that are traveling around, but they also provide a certain raw material for new things to arrive in the genome, to arise in the genome. Uh, and that could be as simple as rescuing something. Uh, they have what are called viral promoters. There's a little chunks of DNA, the parts I was calling sort of sticky ends at either end, and they can actually land next to a gene. Uh, and activate that, that gene, which had maybe previously been inactive. So there, there's a role for the endogenous retrovirus, or ERV, in the genome. It, it can actually reactivate certain things. But it also provides raw material. You know, it, it's random sequences which are properly formatted, which can be turned into proteins that our cells can use. So not entirely a negative thing for, 
for the long term in the genome. Now, they shuffle from time to time. Uh, they have enough resemblance to these viral sequences that if you add a new virus, sometimes it will cause the old dead viruses to sort of reanimate and start hopping around a little bit. Uh, and at that point, we start calling them retrotransposons because they transpose themselves from one location to another. So that happens very, very rarely, but it does happen over the space of millions of years. So we would expect, given two organisms that are distantly related to a common ancestor, that many of those retroviral sequences would be in the same place because the event occurred before the split from that common ancestor. But certain other ones to, to have arrived at new locations. And even some will have hopped from one position to another within the genome. So there's a certain amount of shuffling that goes on. So they provide useful markers for us in recreating the evolutionary history of a, of a shared group of species with a shared ancestor. Uh, because we can determine when these events occurred, uh, which two species, for example, have the same common ERV, and then a third species come along and it doesn't have that, then we can postulate that the split occurred between the first two species much more recently. Does that, so again, is that a basic primer? Yes, it's very good. So uh, I, I do want to carry on at this level, though, just as I say for Jason and, and also for myself, it's very useful um, background information for me as well. So the fact that um, the DNA of a chimp is sequenced and the DNA of a human is sequenced and the ERVs are found in the same place. The significance being what? Um, that it's supportive of a common ancestry or it's supportive of creation? Very clearly, evolution. Very, well, very, Jason, very clearly. You say clearly, but Jason yeah. doesn't get this. He simply does not right. get it. So I don't know whether he doesn't agree that they are. You could certainly appear. postulate that a, a, a you could postulate that a supernatural creator uh, leaves these ERVs scattered around our genome in some way to appear as though <laughs> they have randomly been inserting themselves into various sequences over time, and that. You know, he, he perfectly, or she, perfectly replicates the uh, previous ERV panel minus plus or, you know, five or six plus or minus in the next species. Uh, <laughs> but that's, at that point, you're talking about ridiculousness. Now, I, I'm going to ask well, well, you, well, yeah, not, one second, not only Thunder, that if I may. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question that Jason posed in his most recent video, posted today on ERVs. His question was, if ERVs are supportive of evolution, then you should be able to show him an ERV that is at least six, I kid you not, at least six billion years old. Now, comment, please. <laughs> Wait, they have to be at least six billion years old? Yep. Six billion years old? Yes, yeah, yeah, the billion would be, I think. <laughs> I, honestly, I kid you not, I've decided. You know how um, comas are measured on the Glasgow coma scale? Uh, I've decided that lunacy must now be judged on the Burns lunacy level. And I think that, you know, <laughs> that... that that hits fairly high on the Burns lunacy level. You've, you've got to show him an ER. Maybe, maybe we should... Just, maybe let, let's explain, we... because... 
you know, he, 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 I'm and sure and if you watch yeah, it, explain, explain why he, his, his request is somewhat... Well, I, I think the best estimates are is the, the formation of the uh, sun was about 6 billion years ago, and the Earth only formed about 4.6 billion years ago. Or, you know, that's when it starts to get a solid surface. Um, so asking for retroviruses that predate the existence of the Earth um, is probably going to be difficult. Um, in fact, actually, this, this is actually an interesting question, to which you might or might not know the answer, Concordance. How far back do viruses go? Ooh, it's one of my favorite questions, and it's actually a, a, several chapters of my dissertation. Uh, where do viruses come from? We don't know this for sure, but if this is one of the areas actually that Dawkins most influenced uh, virology, and that is this whole concept of the selfish gene. The virus is the pure selfish gene. It is not itself living. It undergoes no metabolic processes. I mean, it's arguable depending on your definition of life, but it's incapable of replicating itself on its own. It's it's an obligate uh, intracellular parasite. That's that's the phrase. Obligated. It's it's required to go inside the cell in order to make more of itself. So from a classical point of view, it's not alive. Where does it come from? How does it evolve? Well, it almost. Always, a virus shows the properties of the host. They have some unique property that suggests that they were once a part of us. For example, plant viruses have plant genomic structures. They, they use certain types of um, – uh, and this is more than can easily be explained by a sort of evolutionary convergent evolution strategy – it's quite likely that their origin, the origin of a plant virus, is in a plant cell. The first plant virus, no doubt, came from a plant cell. The first animal virus, almost no doubt, came from an animal cell. So they are us. They're just the genes that got tired of waiting around or cooperating and decided to go out on the prowl and start infecting other, you know, other, other vehicles. But if you see the history of life as the history of genes and how they cooperate, these are the competitive genes, the ones who have decided not to cooperate. Uh, and they've, they've gone rogue. They're rogue genes running around out there. So I would suspect that the first retrovirus didn't come much later than the first, you know, genomic organisms, the first organisms to have genomes and complex machinery. Um, it would not surprise me at all to find that retroviruses are almost as old as life itself. Of all the evidence available, this is to both of you, of all the evidence available to both of you, what would you suggest is the strongest evidence in support of uh, evolution? Or do you think it's simply that every strand that we have meshes together so wonderfully? Thunder? I mean, for me, it's just... Um it's an intrinsic property of the system. Once you've accepted that there's um, self-replication with variation and that there is environmental attrition, um, it becomes inevitable. The gene pool is plastic to the environment. Yeah, this is just a property of the system. Um, I mean, for me, it really is just that simple. It's a property of living systems. 
Yeah, let, let me let me come back on that DPR, um, or or to give my answer, and we'll we'll synthesize a little bit. I, what you, what you said is very true. It's sort of the sum total of all the convergent lines, all the concordance of the evidence, all pointing in one direction. If there were say three out of every four lines of evidence pointing in one direction and, and the fourth led some different direction, it would be something very different than what we see. But if I, I had to pick one field in particular, it is the population geneticists. And so, so very few people understand population genetics because it's the intersection of genetics and math. Uh, and even most biologists are not big fans of complex mathematical equations. The, the thing about population genetics is it takes the concepts of evolution and turns them into mathematical models, which can be tested and are themselves predicted. And this is something that I borrow Thunderfoot's term because it so beautifully uh, states the idea. These are models of predictive utility. You can use a population genetics equation like the the Fisher or the Haldane equations or the uh, you know effective population size these are all mathematical constructs which are used in determining whether or not for example a species is endangered whether or not to uh, um, manage a population's diversity whether or not two subtypes are a single species whether or not the gene pool is going to respond well to the influx or migration of uh, say an intruder species there are there are actual mathematical computer models used by biologists to make real-world decisions on things like how many hunting licenses to issue, how much fishing uh, can we tolerate, what is the the natural range of a given animal. These are all things that are built into uh, evolution. And without the, the basic theory, you can't use the mathematical models based in population genetics. I mean, for me, I always had... Um a, a flavor for the simple, if you know what I mean. Um, and it really is, as, as far as I can see, um, once you've accepted that there is reproduction with variation and environmental attrition, it becomes inevitable that... I have to uh, say, Thunder, um, that that sounds a little bit circular to me, because once you've accepted that, then yes, you've accepted evolution, but why is it that you accept that? What is the well, evidence? Do you, well, no, no, no. What, if you like, it is uh, whatever a syllogism. That um, do you accept that life reproduces with variation? I mean, you know, if if you accept, you know, premise one, premise two, then the conclusion is, isn't it? Yeah, the property of the system that is uh, sequential to those two properties is that the the genome will be plastic to the environment. Or the yeah the gene pool will be plastic to the environment. But the variation the variation that takes place obviously can only be a limited degree of variation. Otherwise, there'd be all sorts of problems. And um, I I'm, I'm seeking right, to find right. it. Oh, okay, so well, yeah, there there is an extra um, you know um, branch that you might want want to add onto this. And that's that extinction is a possibility. Um, and you're right, you know, things that don't reproduce um, <laughs> aren't actually seen in the environment. And they do become extinct. 
You know, we have actual observed instances of, of evolution, but what I suspect here, um, DPR and Thunder, is that we're not talking about evolution, little e. We're talking about what these people think evolution is um, and the implications that come from evolution. And those implications are not as well supported and are not a requirement of the science. It does not require that all of Earth had a single naturalistic origin for evolution to be true. That is an additional corollary, and it's certainly something that I would be able to defend. But that's not evolution. You know, I, I, I think it's quite clear at this point that, you know, they're one of three or four competing origin of life stories. But those origin of life stories are not evolution. Uh, and what I hate the most, what bothers me more than anything else, is this hovened uh, total evolution model where <laughs> chemical evolution, the evolution of the solar system, the oh. evolution of the cosmos, you know, let's stretch this thing so tight that you could play it like a drum so that it covers every area of science that doesn't specifically <laughs> comply with the Bible. Evolution is simply the change in allele frequencies over time in a population. From that, you can derive huge numbers of what is part of modern biology. But the model itself, the theory of it, is so irrefutable. It's, it's so incontested in any field of science. What I thought was interesting, though, Concordance, is when I asked both of you, neither of you actually said, well, we've observed it in the laboratory. We've got evidence well, we of it. Yeah, but you didn't, you, neither of you came up with that, that as being your strongest thread or strongest argument, which I don't know. Well, uh, in, in many ways, um, you know, the concept, um, you know, you could observe a single instance of evolution and not have that as a general property. Uh, yeah, which is why I, I favor the, you know, this um, very broad um, and very simplistic approach. You know, then obviously you do get down um, in um, to what Concordance was saying, which is always, if you like, the bottom line is, can you actually use this um, theoretical construct to make useful predictions? Right, because if it doesn't make useful predictions, then it's not really, really much use. Um, so it's, it's, that, that it's might true be or not true, though. Uh, Wait, what does well, it mean, true or not true? That's a that's a loaded yeah. term. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, by, by that definition, is is gravity true or not true? DPR. Oh my oh, god! Or relativity. Eric Haven. Or, or are chemicals <laughs> true or not true? <laughs> right. Is the covalent bond true or not true? What, what I think yeah, that, is... I mean, that, often... that, that is, um, I think, sort of like getting almost close towards mathematics that it's a, co a construct um, that is useful. Um, but, uh, again, just because a construct is useful doesn't mean that it's true. I mean, 2 plus 2 equals 4 because we say it does. Does it have any meaning? Yeah, no, you, you're, getting, you're getting to something very important in science, which is we don't talk about truth. It doesn't matter if it's true. Again, we, we could all be living in the matrix. Oh, and I, I hate to uh, use that, but everyone understands it. But, Concordance, you know how that, that you, what you've just said is going to be totally, quote, mind, out of context. So when you say we're not interested in the truth, perhaps you need to expand on that. We're not, capital, we're not interested in big T, capital T, truth. 
because that's not what science deals in. We're not we're not about peeking under the veil. We're, we're interested in these models of utility, the the ability to to make your TV go or or to land a man on the moon. Uh, does not require that you you know struggle with the epistemological issues of how can we know that the moon is really there or you know of course no one actually landed on the moon because that was all done on a sound stage in Burbank but um I if someone had actually I've got the way of flipping it around DPR um so by your reasoning just because the uh, you know the Bible is demonstrably wrong in a load of places and has no predictive capability. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. Um, that would be correct. Yes. Um, um, I mean, it's inaccuracies. This is the thing, though. I mean, we, to a large degree, we judge whether we have a correct understanding of. Of something or not yeah. on whether we can actually make successful predictions yes. and that, that is if you like what we would normally call truth you know little t truth maybe but um, yeah that, that that basically means that we have uh, a useful understanding of reality I, I think you're just taking things all out of context here and I want to remind you of an argument which again I think features very high on the uh, Burns lunacy level scale which I've created. Um, in, in one of his ERV videos he uh, took a King James version of the Bible and compared it to a, a new international version of the Bible and found that the same word appeared in the same place in both versions and therefore this was proof of ERVs or something. Do not ask me to explain the workings of Burns's mind, but I score that very high on the Burns lunacy level. Um, I, I think got, he's misunderstanding how these ERVs are used. He doesn't used understand what they are. <laughs> they're used to reconstruct a sequence of events, uh, and they are very useful in saying at what point did the split occur between these two species. Uh, because if, if it occurred, say, before that event, and we can usually tell how long the retrovirus has been sitting there because they accumulate mutations at a fairly constant rate. So it's a great dating method for the split between two species. But that's not really what he's objecting to. He's objecting he to the idea. He doesn't know what he's objecting to because he doesn't understand <laughs> what they are. He used a right. chessboard, and basically his analogy was this. Yeah. He set out pieces on random on a chessboard and said, now, imagine someone in America sets out the pieces on a chessboard in a random way. What are the ch chances of the pieces being in the same place? Therefore, ERVs do not prove evolution. That is the extent of his argument. He took 25 minutes to present it, but that is yeah. the extent of the argument. He does not understand them. So, you know, when you try to deal with his understanding, no, you're trying to deal with a lack of understanding, and I don't know how you deal with you that. Because you're going to have to educate him from the first, beyond, well, before primers. He's, he's, not, he's not ready for that. Dumb down some more. And how low do you have to dumb this down? Is why, and this is the same, one last minute. This is why one last minute, if I may. This is the right. same person who a day before had posted a video in which he said, there is no way at all, ever, that I would ever be an atheist, even though he equates... <clears throat> whether rightly or wrongly, evolution with atheism. So he will utterly reject evolution and he will never become an atheist. How do you reason with people like that, who is also frequently 
featuring highly uh, on the Burns lunacy level. I don't know how you deal with fuckwits like him. Yeah, this is what I was going to say. This is why scientists are so bad. Good scientists are bad at debating religious creationists or or fundamentalists. And that's because we we come in with this assumption that people are interested in the knowledge. They want to know the answers to the questions because we want to know the answers to the questions. I want to know where viruses came from. And I come at that completely naively, with a complete lack of preconceptions as far as I can manage it. Of course, I, I probably have my own hair bring theories but when you talk to someone who is filtering information actively scientists can't deal with i can't deal with that is someone who is wrong on purpose or who actively rejects information based on an ideological position they've taken i i can't i can't even relate to that i can't right this if, is if exactly what I mean, the, 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 let, let, let me um this is the thing. Uh, if, say, for instance, me and Concordance would have the discussion about, you know, where did viruses come from, the typical discussion between sort of two academic type folks will, you know, it, it'll frequently have disagreement. It'll frequently have heated disagreement. But, you know, it, it's almost always constructive in that at the end of the day, you you say, well, this is how I think it happened. And the other guy says, well, this is how I think it happened. And so you then get together and you devise an experiment that can actually differentiate between these two. Or in the case of uh, you know, the origin of viruses, um, you know what uh, signatures would you expect in modern-day viruses if this were the case or if this were the case, right? So there is always this uh, um, acceptance on both sides that there is something that you can do that can differentiate between these two models. Now, when you come up to the religious folks, they're not interested in any of that. All they're interested in is this is the right view. Yeah. And so it, it, they're, they're much more about post hoc justifications for why they're right. They don't have any. You, you never get to this point where uh, yeah, this is my proposal of how things work. This is my proposal yeah. how this thing works. I agree. Let's go and that. do some measurements in reality. I entirely and, agree. And this was the, and this was make you know, going um, back a ways, um, and it's sort of partially relevant here, um, in that you know, one of the first things that Concordance mentioned when he was giving his description of uh, retroviruses earlier um, was enzymes. Um, and I remember having a discussion, I forget, with which creationist, with which creationist I was having this discussion, but they were arguing that, what was it, it was the nylonases enzymes um, weren't proof for evolution. Um, and I sort of explained to them how, um, you know, evolution actually uh, changes viruses, changes their function, and so forth. And eventually it turned out that these people who were arguing that... Uh, you know, enzymes aren't proof for evolution. Didn't even know what enzymes were. Yeah, and, and this is the point that I was going to make. I'm sorry I tried to interrupt you. Uh, Burns, I, I swear blind, had not heard about ERVs um, seven days ago. And he is not interested them in them in any way, save to show that they do not prove uh, creationism is not correct. 
That's his only interest. And he hasn't even bothered to actually find out what they are. It, it, it's a, a really a, a very sad indictment upon him in particular and people in general that they feel able to talk about issues about which they have absolutely no knowledge whatsoever. And I, you know, going back to Concordance's point, I just do not know how you deal with these people. They're not interested in the truth. They're not um, interested in discovering anything or, or, or anything but supporting their bigotry and their preconceived, pre, um, presuppositionist yeah. ideas. And Shall just, we move on? Um, yeah, to bring it. Uh, hang, hang on, let me just yeah, put sure. more points and, on this. Um, We'll go to both of you, and then we're going to move on to uh, the Boston bombings, because we've got our first caller waiting. So, Thunder, okay. then concordance. Um, yeah, to sort of bring it back to the original point is um, all, yeah, where concordance started on all of this, is I've been wandering around YouTube um, uh, it, more recently, and it's very depressing just how much pseudoscientific bollocks there is on YouTube. Um, yeah, I found all sorts... Uh, yeah, finding that Brzezinski thing with its absolutely fantastic ratings is depressing. I have found things where they are um, selling this sort of um, new age um, whatever, crystals, woo, there is the quantum stuff, and it's all absolute bollocks. And th this is the thing. Um, the number of people who are calling out this bullshit seems to be going down, um, and there just seems to be no end to the, the amount of bullshit that's being peddled out there, which I find kind of depressing. But anyway, concordance. You know, I what I was really going on, and I want to fully develop this, is I think as a scientist if you're invited to debate or even really just sort of have a conversation with one of these professional creationist types, and let's say we're talking Ken Hovind or Gish, who died very recently, um, Dwayne Gish, uh, or any of these sort of professional creationists, you assume that you're automatically going to win because, A, the facts are definitely on your side, uh, as shown by you know virtually every scientific paper on the topic since you know eighteen whatever, um, and you assume that you're going to be in command of the topic because your knowledge is so vast and so deep, but that's not the case. I mean, I I know an incredible amount about you know, ERVs and viruses and how they work and how they work in the genome, but that's not what the debate is about. Old, though, it's it's you? a Sorry, I, said you <laughs> I sure don't. <laughs> Older than the earth. Uh, no, I, of course. And this is the trap is I've been very careful not to enter into these debates that are you know loud and public like this. And I would encourage anyone else with a similar background to really do their homework on how the debates go. They're not scientific debates. They're, you know, debates over what the public perceives of science. They're debates about, uh, you know, the value if, if of I may, faith. If I may, and, because I'd like you to comment on this, if you will, uh, Concordance. Um, this is something I've forgotten about, um, but the, the conversation has reminded me. Uh, in this country at the moment, well, in Wales at the moment, there is a serious, very serious outbreak of measles. And in 
fact, the first person for many, many years, I can't remember exactly how many, has actually died of measles in Wales. And I suspect that a lot of this is due, due to the fact that because of the MMR sort of like scandal, if you can even use that word to describe it, a lot of parents didn't have their children inoculated. And it's backfiring on us. And yes. people are now dying. This is a disinformation, a yes. result of the disinformation that is being hosted by these idiots. Yeah, and in fact, we, you know, I don't know whether we want to go down this path, but um, we have been selecting for more um, mild forms of measles for decades and decades. And, and viruses evolve very fast, so they've actually started to respond. We're seeing the emergence now of older types of measles virus, uh, subtypes is the, is the proper term measles subtypes as a result and I'm just going to lay it right on her head Jenny McCarthy and her age of autism movement and the you know the fomenting of of public outrage about measles mumps and rubella shots has dropped the acceptance and now these people are taking philosophical or religious exemption and so the the vaccination rates drop from 95% to something like 80% and suddenly you're going to have outbreaks. Now, they're still going to be fairly localized because this is, is confined to a smaller group. But there are going to be deaths as a result of this. And the deaths are going to be counted in the thousands. Yes, and they've started uh, and in Wales. And isn't, it, isn't, it hypocritical? isn't it hypocritical of these people who did not have their children injected because of what? I can't, what's her name again? Jenny, whatever her name is. And, um, her Jenny movement. McCarthy. But McCarthy. Andrew right. Wakefield. And look what's happening now. Every single one of them is rushing their child, children to the doctors to get them injected. How well, hypocritical, isn't it? Of course. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to move on, though, because oh, no, they... we're over uh, an hour uh, into the show. And I do, well, Thunder last okay. word, but then I'm going to move on to Boston. Thunder. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this really does sort of highlight the need for. Uh, more scientifically lit literate outreach in that um yeah I, I think it really is um greatly uh underestimated how much damage that you can do with sort of scientific disinformation like this um yeah i mean i i just wish that more universities took it more seriously on that note, if I may... Let, let me make one last comment. Okay, I'll concordance. share something real quick. Deep Go here. on. I have a... a it's a friend slash ex-girlfriend um, on Facebook who I'm, I'm, you know, friended with on Facebook. And she's a homeopathy proponent. She's also a religious fundamentalist, and, and that's a whole other topic. But uh, she homeschools her kids so she can teach them creationism. This is the culture I live in. Uh, but she's also a homeopathy proponent. And... Um, What's interesting is her daughter, and I wish her the best. I hope everything turns out fine. She treats them with homeopathy and uh, whatever the latest thing is from Joe Mercola. Uh, Joe Mercola's killed more people probably than Hitler. Uh, uh, well, I take that back. Anyway, she follows Joe Mercola uh, in all the things that he, he touts. And then her daughter recently had a bout with something that required that she be hospitalized for fluid push because she was so dehydrated because she'd been treated with, you know, eucalyptus tea and, you know, all these herbal homeopathic whatever. 
And it got to a crisis point. And so here's this little girl shivering in a, a hospital bed where a 30-minute visit to the physician or a long, long time ago would have dealt with the whole thing. So these parents are so concerned about doing what is right for their kids. And then there's this whole industry of people out there trying to scare them that modern medicine is a horrible, horrible thing. Look, modern medicine got us to, I think, a pretty safe place where kids grow up without the risk of measles or rubella or mumps or, you know, any number of diseases that parents used to lay awake at night worrying about. And we virtually, uh, last time you met someone who had polio, right? Well, of course, no one that we've seen in, in recent times has had smallpox, thank God, or thank science, actually. You know, yes. Those are the kinds of things, these poor parents, and I feel for them, they're trying to do what's right. They're being told by various sources that the best thing to do is to askew modern medicine altogether and go back to when we were you know, losing kids left and right to diseases that are now preventable or treatable. Uh, and it, so, it is, so I think, better to blame that industry than it is to blame the parents. I, I think that probably would be right, choices. but there's, there's all, there are also other areas that you can direct criticism at. Recently, the United Nations was um, seeking, I think in uh, Pakistan in particular, to have an inoculation program. And unfortunately, I can't remember what the inoculation was for, but we're talking within the last uh, two months. And on two separate occasions, um, the nurses that were administering these injections uh, were subject to attack, and indeed uh, some of them were killed by members of the Taliban because they thought that this was some crazy Western plot to do something. I can't remember exactly what. Yes. Uh, it's very frustrating, but we're going to leave it for now. If someone would like to call in about this issue, then please feel free to do so. Send a Skype contact request to Magic Sandwich Show uh, on Skype, and we will get you on. But I have been saying from the outset that we will talk about Boston, and our first um, caller, uh, who I'll bring into the call um, shortly, wants to talk about Boston. The issue about it that I would like to raise, and I... I advance this caveat uh, from the get-go. Obviously, it was a deplorable act, whoever committed it. And I know two people um, were suspected, one dead, one now in hospital. Um, exactly what their involvement was uh, is not something that I'm minded uh, to express on this show. I think it's too early to do so. But what I was interesting, and the aspect that I would like to talk about, is the media co coverage of it. And I know that sort of like Thunder in his most recent video touched upon this as well. And it, it also sort of like um, marries in with the coverage of Margaret Thatcher's death. I mean, for goodness sake, she left the uh, number 10 Downing Street over 20 years ago. And on a 30-minute news section, 29 and a half minutes were spent about her death and about two minutes about the fact that North Korea might be a, a, about to launch a nuclear uh, weapon. It seemed to be a strange priority that the media had and as I say the caveat is that no one accepts what these people did and obviously our sympathies are with those that died and the friends and families of those people but I found the coverage the press coverage of the Boston event equally interesting and at the same time or during the sort of like four days in which it was constantly on the news um, there was the explosion in Texas which actually killed more people and injured more people and also at the same time, there was an earthquake in China, which killed significantly more people. So the question that I want to throw out uh, initially as I bring in the first caller is, 
why is it that um, the press and I guess they're pampering to our tastes in a way, so we can blame ourselves as well. Why it is we, it, why are we obsessed with this sort of attack and yet have become almost um, unconcerned about many more people dying uh, in earthquakes that, as I say, took place over the same time um, in China? Thunder, I'm going to start with you, but I'm also going to bring uh, our first caller, Yuri. Thunder. Yeah, um, I, I think there's a large element of that, you know, for a news organization, this is basically what you've got to do to be competitive. Um, you know, that everyone wants to be, I would say had several, uh, I forgot what the news network was, um, where they basically made false claims about this, that, or the other um, with respect to the Boston bombing, uh, simply so they could be first. Um, and... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this is just um, an artifact of the attention economy. Uh, if you don't have people's attention, then you're not successful media. I mean, it's almost tautological. Um, and so you do get into this rather um, disturbing situation where these people are problem. Yeah, these people are feeding the marketplace with what they need to feed it with to be successful. So it really is, what does that say about us? Let's go to Yuri. What are your takes on the Boston bombing? And um, if you want to talk well, about the please, media response to it. I'd like to say hello and thanks for um, having me on the show. It's actually really nice because I often uh, just sit here on the weekends, do my homework and actually listen to the show at the same time. So it's really nice to actually be part of it. Um, my take is more um, sort of reflects my lefty politics. And I believe it's, Essentially, how the fact that we've got to a point now with, say, Rupert Murdoch and whoever owns the Daily Mirror and so on, all these tabloids, that even a state-run company like the BBC has this profit, this drive for profit sensationalism. I, it's not about journalistic quality for places like the Daily Mail and the Sun, which are the most read newspapers in the UK. It's more about profit and this sensationalism you know, just grab the headline, whatever um, whatever the content is, has poured into the BBC and now even if more people die in China or whatever, it's more sort of captivating to show a big explosion and have hints at terrorism and power at 9-11. So essentially think it's the BBC copying the rest of the media's, um, shall we call it, uh, dry for sensationalism, and this brings in a larger audience. Who should so we blame? Who who should we blame, Yuri? Should we blame the press for pandering to what appears to be uh, the public's desire for this sort of story, or should we concentrate more on the public for being interested in this sort of story? Well, I think you could probably dish out the blame equally in portions because I think um, I think people I think there maybe maybe I'm being a bit too like a that guy on Fox News talking about permissive society, but aspects are quite permissive. And the fact that people are more interested in a Hollywood replicated story than somewhere which is more urgently needed, like the Chinese earthquake. And I'm sure if it was in America, there would be loads of um, adverts for aid on so on and so forth. 
And also well, can, can I pause you now and throw, throw this one at you, uh, then, Yuri? Because obviously there was the explosion in Texas, which, as I say, took more lives and caused more injuries than the bombings in Boston. So um, the, the news still concentrated more on Boston than it did on Texas. So um, how would you explain that? Well, essentially, I'd say it's, it's more interesting for people. So there, you could put that blame on the public. It's more interesting for people rather than, um, you know, the, the deafness of rut. It's more interesting for people to see these actions, movie-esque scenes of lockdowns in Boston, these um, two terrorists and so on, um, than it is to uh, listen to stuff about Texas. I think, in general, it's just more interesting for people to have this... Uh, to see Boston because it's more around terrorism and as I keep saying, and I'm sorry I'm not expressing myself terribly but just this action movie-esque vibe of it all rather than um, Texas which is sort of we just learned literally uh, um, like half an hour in that was an explosion which was just literally an accident, no terrorism involved, so people are literally just more interested in terrorism well, I I live very close to West uh, Texas. We we go up there every year for well, almost every year for West Fest, which is a it's a Czechoslovakian uh, colonized area. So they have lovely uh, Czech food and music and you know polka and it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, the, the reason why I think legitimately it's not as big a news story, even though the the human impact is larger, is that's the end of that story in terms of news. At this point, it's just the grieving. But there was a lot more to what happened in Boston. It was an ongoing story. It was uh, the beginning of what would probably end up being a very long saga in you know American history, or at least recent American history, because they had to catch the guys. We had to understand the cause of what they did. We have to talk about how we're going to change the way we live in order to accommodate these kinds of things. Um, I, I have to say... Legitimately, I think Boston is a is a bigger story just for those reasons. There's a lot more going on there, as opposed to you know a negligent factory owner um, and the really bad decision to put a retirement home across from a flammable fertilizer plant. And those are the kinds of things that don't require that we change the way we live. Um, I mean, that's and maybe that's a little bit dry and objective, but I have to agree the Boston story has the bigger impact. Well, can I just say something? I think that's what you're saying is very, very true. But I think also um, it's not always like that. For example, when there were those terrible shootings in um, the cinema around summertime, I remember um, one of my friends on Facebook who's fairly sort of politically radical, sort of one day will call himself a leftist and then an anarchist and an anarcho-communist. But he said, um, which I found pretty disrespectful, but he said something, he was just ranting on about how Americans only focus on themselves. And I think on that day, something in the Middle East happened, like a bombing or something. And he said, uh, it's just Americans who can't appreciate, who always have to be so self-centered and they can't um, focus on the other story, which has more of a political context and humanitarian context because there were more lives lost. So, yeah, I think what you're saying is true, but 
and sometimes you do see the media behaving a bit unscrupulously and pandering to the public's interest when there's more of a, um, shall we say, a bet that there would be more objectively an interest in seeing the other story. So, yeah, that's my take on it. But I agree with you there, Concordance, for this particular story, at least. I, I know that, you know, fear sells. That's that's the kind of crass um, attitude. And, and I think my attitude towards news reporting has changed after watching, um, oh, what is it, the newsroom uh, drama. It, you really, I think the media shows have morphed from journalistic reporting and are now more what you might call entertainment, or at least in the U.S. I, BBC might have a little bit more integrity. Um, but these things have gotten to the point where they are pandering to an audience, and the events that happen are just what provide the topical content. But it's basically it's the talking heads discussing these things and trying to be the first to talk about them. And it really isn't like it used to be, I think, in this case, where there was a sense of responsibility. Uh, you know, journalists were something like a, a firefighter or, or a policeman, police person. They had um, a sense of duty. This is what I do. I report it as honestly and factually as possible to something that is much more about I, I keep the, the, the eyes on the screen by telling them that the world's going to end tomorrow. Uh, and that's my job as an entertainer. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm not the right person to be critiquing the media, but that's that's the impression I get. Well, yeah, I also get this impression. I mean, um, I can say um, maybe DPR might disagree with me, but at least in the UK, I see trends um, gearing up to commercialisation. And for example, Sky News, I think, is probably as popular, maybe even slightly more popular than BBC News. And that's when you look at half the stuff and there's complete crap, if I can say that, because it's literally just half of it is celebrity interviews and what does Jude Law think of this and so on. And so, yeah, it's more um, entertainment packed and more pandering to people's um, sort of just what they want to see on television. They don't want to really learn. They just want to have some just um, watch it like a movie. They're not really interested anymore in any proper journalistic integrity, as you said. So, I mean, the first thing is with the BBC, um, in many ways, this is one of the few ways that you have around the, you know, it, it should give me what I... Um, it should give me objective reporting, not just feed me mush that I that not just popular mush. Um, that you can get off the BBC because technically they don't have to be competitive. In reality, of course, they are actually now worldwide competitive. So they're trying to sort of, if you like, serve two masters. Yeah, there's a bit of a conflict of interest there. Um, the second thing is, I think a lot of what made the um, the Boston Marathon bomber, such a big story, is uh, um, it's essentially the same reason that people watch the wildlife documentaries to see the gazelle get eaten. You know, I mean, it, it, it was the hunt. 
you were watching the hunt for the bad guy in society. Um, and there was the, uh, um, yeah, when was the bad guy going to get caught? Um, and there, there was a thirst for that sort of thing. That's, I think, the primal thing that it, it's, it's driving at is there is a bad guy in our midst and we have to get him. And people are sort of vicariously getting that through the media. So uh, there's one there's one prediction that I I must make it. In fact, I've already made it in the other conversations, but not publicly about this. Um, it, it's not a miraculous. Um, it's not miraculous, but I, I can swear blind that there will be conspiracy theories come out of this, and they will go along the lines of these two people were innocent. They didn't have the capacity to make bombs or oh. them. They were all uh, uh, working for someone else. Uh, has it already started? I haven't seen it. Yeah, there are so uh, many. Hugely. Those, I think, really? I think hugely. Alex Jones has got in already. No. And, <laughs> so, I think no, I, I, I'm I, not, not sure. Not only that, I think when I was going some, around... Yeah, Sorry, when, 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 when I was going around um, getting some of the footage together, it's wall-to-wall conspiracy theories about the Marathon Bomber already, which is bloody stupid. Um, you know, a black powder bomb in a pressure cooker is... Um, it is the most low-tech terrorism you can get. The mere fact that... Um, you know, it blew people's legs off and only killed three. I mean, I, yeah, I, I say this now. Um, y- you know, this was not even um, a remotely sophisticated attack. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the idea that you need a conspiracy to explain this is is just bloody crazy. But yeah, this is what I was saying. That's not going to stop the conspiracy theory starting, but, is it? But this, this is what I was saying earlier. I mean, you had all of this homeopathy, the yeah, the bogus cancer treatments, the magical crystals and pyramids crap, and now you get the wall-to-wall conspiracy theories about you know something that um, really doesn't require any of that. Um, it's just kind of depressing. Anyway, back to some Concordance. Else. You know, I guess what what is it that's systematically wrong with our society? It's this fear of actual knowledge. I, I wish it were something I could flip a switch and make people love the idea of learning, love the idea of, of sort of empirical testing of things, and make them skeptical of everything they learn. I, I think that would be a marvelous thing. But these people have these preconceptions that they're always going to fit the facts into. And it must be a horrible way to live. Going around through your life, already knowing what the answer needs to be, and deciding which facts to accept or reject on that basis. Alex Jones strikes me as a very unhappy person. You know, he strikes me as someone who is... He sees the world as frightening and scary and malevolent. Uh, and you talk to people on the Internet who instantly assume one of two things. Either if you disagree with them, either you are ignorant or you are malicious. 
you either don't know something that that person knows or you're a bad guy or a shill or you know robot program to to go around spreading disinformation i get that a lot on any kind of alternative medicine video there are people who show up and say you know i hope you loved cashing your check from you know astrazeneca or bristol myers squibb or pfizer whoever they hate the most or if it's about gmos they say oh you know this guy's paid by monsanto because that's the only way they can accept that someone else with a rational brain, with a modicum of intelligence, disagrees with their viewpoint. And I think when I see that as, as sort of a, a reminder to me not to make the same mistake. Don't assume that the you know, Alex Jones fans out there are necessarily ignorant or malicious. It could just be they have a very different perspective or a different, different life experience. They could be wrong and they could be malicious – but I don't think that's a safe assumption anymore. I, I always try to meet each person honestly on their arguments. And if I can reject their arguments based on actual evidence, something that isn't based on sort of innuendo or, or fallacies, then I feel good about that. But I don't assume that everyone who is religious is dumb. I don't assume that everyone who is a creationist is somehow malicious. I try to respond to the actual person and the actual arguments. It just so happens that many of them are ignorant. Um, I don't know. Well, hey, that's, I mean, I'll, 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 that's a rant. I'll, I'll stop there. Let me just... Um, yeah, I, I found it very depressing that um, yeah, when I consider just how much disinformation Alex Jones does put out, out there, how much paranoia and how many if you like um you know because he's into it all he's into climate denial i mean climate change denial uh you know how um many climate scientists do you actually not know so much climate scientists but how much um scientifically how many scientifically literate people do you need to employ to uh, counter the effects of someone like alex jones Yuri, I think you wanted um, to pick up on something. Yeah, um, actually, yeah, I'd like to pick up on Alex Jones. It's just, I sense, um, if you look at, if you spiral away from BBC News or just in general mainstream news content providers, there is this sort of a slippery slope which can go on several layers from, say, Russia Today to Alex Jones to saying... Um, I don't know, there's a Jewish conspiracy controlling the world and they plotted um, 9-11. I mean, I, I browse the internet and so on for sort of less mainstream political sites and so on. And it is such um, a common theme to have someone exactly like Alex Jones, who is literally just um, managing to survive on the fact that they can muster up an emotional... I don't know, emotional energy of people to think that the world will end tomorrow or that there is a big new war in Iran which could have happened in the last 10 years or so. So, yeah, that's my short point, just saying that it is really common now, unfortunately. It's just um, so easy for people to um, convince themselves that um, maybe because they don't understand or agree fully with mainstream politics that this is necessarily 
what's going on, all these conspiracies and so on. I mean, just going back to the comment you made, Concordance, um, about Alex Jones and how he's consistently angry, um, it, it must be painful for him to maintain that level of anger. I mean, to spend a minute in the mind of Alex Jones would be a nightmare. If it were the case that it's true, but this is a question I posed in the chat, I'm not sure whether you picked up on it. Um, do you think he's he, he's being genuine in his views, or do you think he's just working the crowd to maintain his income? I think it's a mistake to assume he can't do both. I, I, I honestly, I can imagine that he operates on two levels. There's that sort of inner quiet voice that he probably has that says, you know, I'm probably, <laughs> I'm probably hyping this up. Uh, you know, I'm an entertainer, and I don't fully believe all this stuff. But then at the other time, I, I think you have to psych yourself up, and I, I believe he's probably a little bit of both. I think if you got down to his real core, he'd say that some of this stuff is pretty weak. You know, it's 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 maybe he doesn't believe, agree with all of it, but I think that that is so counter to what he makes a living at that he has effectively suppressed that quiet, still voice telling him that this isn't true. Um, I would you know, offer one. I would offer a word of caution there, concordance and. Um, it's the slippery trap to think that um, everyone deep down thinks the way that you do, which is there's a logical way to address it, if you like. But um, Alex Jones, to me, has... Um, if that's a stage personality, it's a bloody convincing one to me. Um, you know, And I, I think there are actually people who are just that yeah, they are genuinely that crazy. Um, there is no inner voice, um, no inner rational voice. Well, I think it could be like someone like Rush Limbaugh. I don't think Rush Limbaugh agrees personally with everything he says. I think some of it is an act. I think fundamentally he considers that the success of his show, the success of the Republican Party, all of these things are very important. But I don't and truly believe that he believes the things he's saying. Uh, he's too intelligent to, to, to buy into that. Yeah, I mean, I, I know what you're saying, that there does actually, you know, these people are coherent. They... Um, they uh, can put an argument together. I mean, it might be completely specious, but they can put it together on the fly and sound convincing when they do it. Um, and at that point, it gets very difficult to tell um, are they for real or not. Uh, we're going to go to yeah, concordance let me, let and then mention... uh, back to Yuri, but okay. then I've got another caller waiting. So we'll go concordance, Yuri. I'll tell you, what, when I realized that this was the case it was when I went to SMU in Dallas, Texas. We had the uh, Discovery Institute presenting one of their really stupid films. Um, and I had a chance to ask a panel of Discovery Institute fellows, including um, oh, Richard von Sternberg and uh, Doug Axe and, and a few of the others, whether or not you know, they could explain, say, gene duplication. The answers they gave... And I think Sternberg forgot for a minute who he was, <laughs> where he was, and started giving the correct biologically modern answer. 
And then he suddenly switches and says, but, 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 and, and he, you know, then he switches gears back. And I thought, he knows the right answer, but he just remembered that giving the right answer undermines his argument. And, and so he's switching gears into something that he obviously knows is incorrect in order to rescue the position that he's taken. And again, I don't think it's a matter of lying to himself or being honest with himself. I think he has gotten himself into a position where he is so deeply invested in being wrong or saying something he doesn't fully believe in that he can't escape. He's trapped. Um, and I, I continue to believe that there are people like that, basically where it is so important that they maintain that delusion with themselves that in order for that cognitive dissonance to be resolved, they have to believe it. They force themselves to believe it, even if they don't, way deep down at a deeper level. Let's pass it to Yuri. Um, yeah, about this sort of a self-delusion. I think it's amazingly rife now, wherever you go. Sorry, I missed that. You think it's amazingly... Yeah, so, so I think it's amazingly rife, sort of wherever mm. you go, um, but particularly in our political classes. I mean... Um, I follow Richard Dawkins on Twitter. I remember in the presidential election, he, um, I think he's practically liberal in his political opinion, and um, he kept advocating Obama. He was saying, yes, he is Christian, um, but firstly, he's, I don't think he's a moral one, so he's less radical, and secondly, he must be deluding himself. He, um, he's just too intelligent. Do you think he was a moron or a Mormon? <laughs> um... Yeah. Um, First but, one, then the other. Both. <laughs> um, so I think it's just amazingly rife. It's, I think, to paraphrase, if anybody in the chat or in the call has seen the thick of it, um, just uh, a sitcom about UK politics, there's a bit at the end where the main character slash bad guy is cornered and about to end in an inquiry and he says that people the popularity a lot not only with these um david ike like people on the internet or that um who we be talking you're talking about earlier that um guy on youtube who posts a dozen videos a day and so and so they have they basically have to delude themselves to enable them to either get attention or popularity and it's as simple as that. And I think it's a um, very Machiavellian thing to do, very horrible. But in the end, it can get you the results you want, to be honest, particularly in politics. What have you got for us today, Alfred? Oh, I wanted to talk about the, uh, uh, uh mentioning homeopathy, it's the, the, the Shivals from Philadelphia that lost their second child, their second one, to fake healing. Now, they've already been, uh, they were sentenced to probation back in 2009 after the two-year-old died of pneumonia. And now, they didn't learn their lesson that there is no protection for these children. And I had, I wanted uh, to get you all, I mean, we spoke about it briefly, but it's just 10 years of probation for allowing a two-year-old to die, to die from something that's very curable. But then they didn't learn their lesson I've had this discussion with a few people, and I can't remember who, and I can't remember from which states they were from. But my understanding, and do correct me, 
if I'm wrong, and Concordance, I think, may know about this as well. The, the laws are actually different in different states. And in some states, uh, failure to get your child uh, suitable uh, medical treatment uh, does amount to or can amount to manslaughter. In other states, it doesn't. Am I, am I right in that? It's a state-by-state state sort of issue. Yes. Yes. But there are, there are, therefore, what you appear to be saying, there are some states um, where failure to get your child suitable health care based on religious beliefs is a defence. Is that right? I think well, the defense has, is usually that the, the parent has certain rights uh, to govern the child's medical care. The, the, the autonomy of children or the, the medical rights of children is something that has to be fought in the courts quite often. What penalty would you impose upon these parents, Alfred? Uh, firstly, if this is child neglect, uh, CPS would have to be called and it would have to be examined on a case-by-case basis. But if it's determined that they willfully neglected their child and didn't bring them to the emergency room when it called for it, for instance, pneumonia, then their children need to be taken away, point blank, period. I mean, not give them another chance and put them on probation for 10 years. So let me let me suggest if this is something that you are passionate about, there's an excellent group that I, I try to support whenever I can, and that's uh, C-H-I-L-D, Child. Uh, children's health care is a legal duty. Uh, and they argue this pro bono cases, basically. They, they represent the child in cases where the child might have a legitimate grievance against their own parents as part of an emancipation situation. They also do their best to um, uh, contribute to legislation designed to protect children from any kind of medical neglect, um, especially religious medical neglect. Christian science is a big part of that. Uh, my dad is, was raised Christian science. My uh, grandmother was a, a Christian scientist, and they do not subscribe to the use of any kind of uh, non-surgical medical interventions. So when my dad was sick, he didn't go to the doctor. She prayed for him. Uh, eventually, my grandfather, who was not Christian science, had to intervene and take him when he was very, very, very sick uh, with with what turned out to be the flu uh, to get him fluid support and and take care of him. It's entirely possible he could have died. Um, You know, my grandmother was not a bad person, but she was indoctrinated in the church. How far back are you willing to to push the the line of blame? You know, do do you expect parents to come out of their brainwashing or their whatever to realize just how wrong they are um, but I, I, I go down both paths. When it comes down to it, though, it takes some sort of a derangement of the brain to hear your child in pain and suffering and to continue to allow them that uh, for long periods of time in order not to violate some religious taboo. Um, I think that ultimately my sympathy runs out. My sympathy is fine right up to the point where you hear about the child who cried for three days prior to to his his death because the the parents refused to seek any kind of medical care. Um, The really gray area cases are the ones of the 15 and 16-year-olds 
who, for example, might have some sort of a very treatable cancer. And because they've been raised in this church, they've been told not to seek care. And because they're close to the age of consent, they can make these medical decisions for themselves. But can they really make the medical decisions for themselves if they've been raised and, and brainwashed and indoctrinated uh, in this particular belief system? Well, very interesting issues. Where would you draw the line? Would you blame the church? I don't for the think it's easy. I don't, I don't, there's no black and white. I, 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 I fully accept there isn't, passion. but I'm just wondering where you draw the line personally. I'm not saying that your your demarcation would be correct. I'm just curious as to where would you where would you it, draw that line? There's a reasonable there's a reasonable case for anything which might be considered life threatening. Any self limiting disease. It's very hard to prosecute the parents for doing, again, what they think is right. But for any kind of life-threatening disease, and, and that's a pretty big category, I think that we need to educate parents in the schools, future parents in the schools, um, that regardless of their beliefs, when someone's life is on the line, that they have a legal obligation, that children's health care is a legal duty which they must discharge as parents. That is an expectation of our society, that if their child has any risk of death, they are obligated to seek some sort of medical care. Failure to do so carries with it a legal, the, the, uh, you know, legal punishment. The problem with that concordance is it's too wishy-washy, because how, how they expect to know whether the condition their child is suffering from is life-threatening or not. Of course. They may right. think it's just and it's a cold, like and they'll be, that, you know, they stand up in court and say, well, I didn't think it was life-threatening. I thought they just had a cold to get better. I just needed to give some hot drinks and a bit, of, a bit more prayer than I normally do for them. Everything will be fine. That, this, is, this is the problem with that say, somewhat wishy-washy sort of Of course, of and we can grapple over that. I mean, what if, what if a parent just didn't want to take their kid to the, the doctor and they developed an embolism from whatever... Um, you know, where do, where do you draw the line? I don't think there's any obvious suggested line. Uh, and again, I want to I want to be sympathetic to the fact that some people have certain religious beliefs. I don't want to see those people in jail just because they were doing what they were told was right. Uh, I just don't think that's very compassionate. But at the same time, the child has rights as well. How can we draw the line so that both the parent and the child? have their rights respected. And I think it comes down to the right of every person to live. You know, they're, they're one of the most basic rights of all, which is their right to be provided with adequate care to continue their life. What is the position? I don't know whether um, anyone uh, knows definitively, but if, if you do, um, but no. What is the position so far as Jehovah's Witnesses are concerned in the refusal of blood trans, uh, transfusion if they... Uh, patient is a child, and the parents are making the decision. Can they refuse it and get away with that, even though it ends there is in the actually, child being um, a child dying? There, there are two distinctions. One, there's the Medical Ethics Review Board. Uh, it's a group of physicians and administrators within the hospital who hear cases like that, uh, and they decide whether or not, ethically and medically, they are compliant with medical issues. Uh, and then there is the legal issue. So what will often happen is the medical ethics board will say, forget you, um, Mr. Parent, mom or dad, uh, we are treating this kid and we are giving them the standard of care because without it, the, the, this is a non-recoverable, the, the risk is too great. 
And that's a medical decision made by the, the treatment group, uh, whether that's a hospital or a private clinic or whatever. Then the parent can go to the court and get an injunction to block the medical decision of the review board. So that's the tension between the two. The yeah, and what, has, happens, what happens in the case of emergency where this child is knocked down by a car and has to be rushed off for immediate surgery? We don't have time for the court proceedings. The doctor wins, right? right. The doctor does whatever, and then they deal with that legally. Okay. But that's why they, they have a CYA, a cover-your-own-ass type of strategy, which is we spread the blame around as much as possible. I consulted the medical review board, right? And then the entire hospital or the entire clinic is liable for whatever damages if it can be shown that they followed some sort of a legal procedure. But, yeah, I mean, for me, being a medic, it's certain signs and symptoms that you're going to see when your patient starts to really deteriorate. If, for instance, my patient comes to me and he is fully ambulatory and he is not um, – uh, he is of sound mind because well, I usually know him, being that I work with them mostly on a daily basis. If they become semi-ambulatory or just completely non-ambulatory, that's a sign that something needs to be done. Whatever treatment that I gave or whatever intervention that I have attempted uh, recently is not working. So then we need to move up to an, an upper echelon of care. So these parents know, and as soon as in their mind that they go, well, maybe I just need to crave harder or throw some more uh, salt over my shoulder or whatever magical thing that they do, that is totally upon them trying to feed their need to feel closer to whatever deity or spiritual being that they perceive uh, they perceive that is going to intervene. Ironically enough, this, this magical being didn't want to act and prevent this from happening. So, and, and I have to agree with concordance that some of these folks are really trying to believe this stuff. I, I know I have in my family, not necessarily Jehovah's Witnesses, but some of them that actually believe uh, that prayer can move mountains, so to speak. So I personally am less sympathetic because my overall goal is to protect the child. I could care what happens to the adult because at the end of the day, they're making a decision that they're making a gamble based on their own religious beliefs and reality. If they choose superstition and magic over reality and the care of their child, then they don't need to have children. That's personally how I feel about that. It's a sticky, sticky situation because, again, the, the lines are so blurred. Um, but the, the, the challenge I see, and this is why I support CHILD, is there is very little advocacy for the, the point of view that you and I hold, Alfred, which is that the child's health care is something that the state has a legal priority for. Um, there's very few people advocating that, right? There are child advocacy, advocacy groups, but they steer clear of this issue because it runs afoul of religion. Uh, and nobody wants to go up against the Catholic Church or uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses for fear of, you know, A, they have some great lawyers, uh, and B, you're going to get the kind of reactions that you get from uh, Planned Parenthood, right? Think about what Planned Parenthood advocates have to go through all the time. And a good portion of what they do is just family planning, right? It, just because they're the only ones equipped to fight that battle. Again, I've just been looking at the comments in the chat, and 
Um, the question is, is asked, um, why is it that Jehovah's Witnesses refuse blood transfusion? Is it something in the Bible? I think it is. It is. Uh, it, it's an odd interpretation yeah, it's, it's of in one very, very small line. Do you remember what it is, Concordance? I don't know the exact scripture, but it says basically that uh, anyone in the, of the tribe of Israel who eats or ingests of any way the blood of an animal along with the flesh would be cast out. So they, they interpret that as you can't eat blood and you also can't take in blood in any form. So nothing made with a blood product it can be allowed inside their bodies. Uh, and that, that severely limits the kinds of options that a, a medical support offers um, maybe that's an interesting segue into um, what I introduced at the beginning of the show, which was the the image I show you, showed you of a Jew in a bag. Um, Tony, are you are you able to? I hope you're still with us, Tony. Are you able to bring that image back up on screen and we can talk about this? Anyone in the chat um, on UStream? Have you seen this picture before? And anyone in our conversation, have you seen this before? Yes, actually, I saw it when it first got posted. And I'm like, wow, this guy must really not like the air <laughs> in the airplane. And that I, I really didn't understand until I did some research. And there was a, a this is an ultra-Orthodox Jew, evidently. And his uh, head rabbi guy uh, made some sort of decree that you can't fly over cemeteries because it's against um, some super Jewish rule that the magic ghost of whoever is going to grab up a particular ball. I, I honestly don't, don't know. It's just a rule that they made. I, I can, I, I can uh, talk recently. about this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, the, one of the air, airports in Israel, and I can't remember which one, uh, used to the flight path went directly over a cemetery. And the the rule was that this, and it's not just the fact that they're orthodox, it has to be of the, uh, is it the Cohen, Cohen's, uh, which is a particular priest caste in the, the old uh, Jewish, uh, what you, Israeli population. Um, but they were considered cleaner, I guess. And even going through a cemetery, in any way passing over a dead body, would considered was considered contamination, uh, and so it was determined that if you were in a carriage, you know, in a chariot or a carriage or any kind of uh, moving structure and passing over a cemetery, that that would also contaminate you. So that's a certain interpretation. Um, Can you explain? There's this a really good article on this. Can you explain this to me because I'm kind of confused, and uh, Dave in the chat has has, has brought it up. Um, he's sealed in an airtight metal container. Right. Why does he think right. a plastic bag is going to give him added protection? Because of the proximity to his body. Right? This is actually something that... Why that doesn't he shrink himself on. then? <laughs> because then he wouldn't be able to breathe. Uh, no, it was the proximity to his body. It's on White Evolution is True, which is Jerry Coyne's website. Uh, of course, he is ethnically Jewish, but not a practicing Jew. He's a really good uh, scientist and, and atheist. He he um, he talks about the Jew in the plastic bag, uh, and it's a Kohen, if I'm saying that pr- properly, that uh, the fact that he's in the bag is because the, the Talmud says something very specifically about 
walls around us, and the closer the walls, the the more protection we get from it. Uh, um, and, you know, add that to all the list of silly things that some people will do in order to comply. I have to say that when when I sent this image to Thunder and said we've got to talk about this on the show, he said, "Oh, I hope he put some holes in it so he could breathe." My immediate response back was, "I hope he didn't." Um, where I got this from was, well, uh, and, and my 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 second comment was. Um, no one tell him that we live on a planet which has four and a half billion years of death. Uh, he's continually walking over something's grave. If there are aliens out there and they were to come and visit our planet, I think that they would find some of the behavior of some people very, very odd. You can imagine them looking down thinking, what on earth are they doing? What the hell are we wasting our time on this planet for? There's got to be better life out there than this. So one last question for each of you. Imagine you got on a plane and the person sat next to you was wrapped in a full plastic bag and it was a long-haul flight. Um, How would you react and what conversation would you strike up with this person? I I would make sure that he eats lots of beans. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, For the record, I understand right. he only wore the bag on the outbound departure. I mean, he only when they were taking off because it was a, a, a known flight path over a, a cemetery. So he didn't wear it the whole flight. Okay. Well, that makes perfect sense then. <laughs> so you know what? I would I would just be grateful because I hate that awkward chick chat. And by the look of the guy, he looks like the kind of awkward chit chat you get would be. Um, Unfun, because uh, I doubt he's got many stories to tell. So I would just be grateful to have the privacy, right? Maybe we should all wear bags. Maybe we should sell them in that uh, little catalog they put in the back of all the the seats. Um, Sky Mall. We should sell a Sky Mall item where everyone have their own private chamber, right? Just a bag you drop over your head. I would pay money for that. But the thing, on, on, a, on a more serious level, if we can get more serious, um, he's, a, he's a huge flight risk because he would not be able to get to the exit in an efficient and speedily manner when he's dressed in a fucking plastic bag. And if I was on the yeah, inside I and I couldn't get, I mean, I would, I'd be concerned about that. It's I like just, a dry cleaner bag. I mean, I'm, I imagine he could get it off in a hurry. It's not like he's wrapped head to toe. It's got a either. huge knot of, at the back of his head. He's not going to get out of that quickly. Yeah, but I don't think it's... Anyway. On the the Burns lunacy level, I would have that down as um, That's four pretty uh, high. milliburns. Yeah, four milliburns. Yeah. I think our friend uh, Jason Burns just posted another video on our anti-Semitism. Hmm. Well, that's something to look wow. forward to, everyone. I'll, I'll include a link to his channel if you... He's going to have fun with your chewing up... Back yeah. Uh, DPR. Yeah. Well, it's all your fault. I'm personally I'll responsible. I'll be willing to engage him. You are? Oh, well. You'll, I'll be you'll only to engage, engage, he will only engage if you disassociate yourself with this program that he has a huge issue with. Uh, you also have to be his chum. You have to have a proper academic debate with him on a topic that he will choose in a forum and in a format that he will choose. Um, and you've got to be nice to him. I mean, this is an issue, again, I, I spoke briefly to Thunder about this the other day, about you know, his desire to bring everyone together, to have a nice, a nice cup of tea and, and a nice chat. Well, what am I going to the table 
for Jason to say, yeah, well, I respect you for your beliefs. No, it's not going to happen because I don't. I think you're a deluded fuckwit. How, how do we get over that hurdle? <laughs> I can say, yeah, like, well, and I do. I respect him as a human being and um, I certainly would have no desire to see harm come to him. But I can't respect his views. And that's what he's uh, basically he is asking for. Um, and it, as I say, it just can't happen. I agree. He is very, very out there. I'll say that. I tried watching a few of his videos, and I think I actually made a response video to, to one of them. And after that, it, it's like, wow, how do you respond to someone who is so crazy but wants you to lick his bum and be his friend at the same time? Yep. I don't understand. And this is a person that posts video after video, particularly aimed at a Ronra. Uh, that's Ronra, if you're not familiar with the Burns, <laughs> the Burns pronunciation of his name. Uh, calling him a coward, calling him disgraceful, and, and recently also uh, calling, get this, uh, me, Thunder, and you, Concordance, you get tarred with the same brush. We are all sexual deviants. Wait, how am I a sexual deviant? I'm not, uh, you're an I'm atheist. not enjoying that very much. You're an atheist. Oh, you're a dinosaur. No. Um, shall we wrap it up? Uh, yeah, only that we need more people fighting the pseudoscience because there's just not enough people doing it. Alfred, you next, and then we'll go to concordance. Uh, a few things, yeah. Concordance, a few of us actually wanted you to, if you can, do a video on the, the ERVs. Uh, I was really interested in hearing that. Um, and I also want to. Uh, do a little shout out to Mr. Burns. I will happily engage you when I am not in the field. I am frequently, I'm, I am in the army, so I do have to go out to the Mojave Desert and fight sandstorm for about five days at a time. So when I come back, if you want to make a video targeting me, and I'll happily make response videos, so if you can give uh, DPR and uh, Run Raw and Concordance and Thunderfoot a break, because I actually enjoy some diplomacy. And as always, I really appreciate being on the show and I'm trying to fight the good fight where I am out here, but uh, more to come, definitely. Okay, stick with us. We'll carry on chatting after the show. Uh, concordance, last words before we wrap things up. I want to say uh, thanks for being on the show, Alfred. It's, it's um, you always bring something nice to the to the table. Um, I want to thank everyone else too who helped out with mirroring. Uh, it was an amazing response, and I really appreciate it. It shows something I think really powerful about our community, and that is when it really does. Push comes to shove, we, we do all all join together to fight what is legal thuggery, um, and more to come on this. You know, I'll, I'll keep you updated as I proceed with this. I have a strategy, I have a goal in mind. <laughs> Would be nice if I can find a, a legal representation, someone who deals with these kinds of cases on a regular basis, um, and I may have that. So we'll see how it all goes. Uh, and I promise to get back on the. Um, making a video horse again uh, falling off way too much thanks thank you very much and thank you everyone for watching we'll see you in two weeks